You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L, and Jeff McLaudridge is on vacation, <laughs> as it were. So as we have mentioned a couple of weeks ago, our friend Jeff had some health issues. We had to take a couple of weeks off from recording. We are recording new episodes. New episodes will go up on August the 7th. So for now, please enjoy the podcast version of the montage scene from any good Rocky movie. Here is a Best of Twibley for the week beginning July the 10th. July 10th, 1947. The first practical rectangular television picture tube is invented and produces a TV. Before this, and you may not know this out in the audience, but television picture tubes were round. They were like giant light bulbs with a coating on the inside, what would have been the bulby top part that the electrons bounced off of to make the scan lines for your TV. Right. I remember, I remember seeing, like, really old pictures of really old television sets, and oddly enough, they look more space-age than stuff did in the space-age. They definitely look like, um, like an, almost like an oscilloscope, which I associate with mad scientists, in, just <laughs> in general, and or science fiction movies from the 50s. But it looks like an oscilloscope with a picture on it. The problem with that te- the technology with a round screen is it tended to distort as it got closer to the round edges. Right. And you kind of had to look at those straight on, too. You, you definitely did, which is why all those pictures of, like, kids and adults, like, all squeezed together in front of that round screen from the 40s and 50s is so iconic, because right. otherwise they couldn't see it. You have to line up single file to watch television. Right, right. Well, that's aren't the first kid would, like, absorb all the radiation, so the second kid wouldn't absorb as much. Like, by the time it got to dad, he was probably safe. Um, it's all cool in the middle and crispy on the edges. <laughs> exactly. Cold, yeah, cold on the inside, burned on the outside, like the fish sticks they were eating from their TV dinners. Um, the rectangular TV did a couple of things. One, it expanded the aspect ratio of uh, so that the picture itself was more like a picture that you'd see on a f- movie screen. Because at the time, not all movies were 4-3 aspect ratio, but they were close. Right. There was Cinemascope, and there was some other things that sort of ex- Cinerama that expanded it. But those were specialty c- theaters that showed those. The 16 by 9 ratio of movies, even in the movie theaters, didn't come until much later. Making the television rectangular also flattened the tube so that you had a wider angle that you could see the, the images on the screen from if you were sitting in front of it. So now you could put the TV in the center of the room and people could sit around it and still see the picture, as opposed to all having to sort of sit directly in front. And that became the standard until HD TV became a thing in the 1990s, where you started to get flat screens. Yeah, oh, and then oh, remember that, dude? Screens. Remember whenever like a flat screen television was like, <gasps> yeah, you know, yes. I still have. I'm looking at it right now. It's it's in this room. I still have a first generation HD TV. It's a Samsung. To it doesn't even have HDMI inputs. 
but it was the very first generation high def television. You know, right. you had the uh, the RGB, the three, the three inputs for the red, green, and blue. Yep. And I remember getting that television. The thing weighs a freaking ton. I remember getting that television and plugging in my DVD player and watching Pink Floyd The Wall in, you know, what was considered high def at the time and noticing all the imperfections in the film transfer because you could actually, the quality was so good that you could actually see the imperfections in the, in the film transfer. Uh, you could, you could see the limitations. You can see the limitations. Right. That you end up doubling the number of scan lines it's going to make for, you know, a, a crisper picture for sure. And th those first HDTVs were all 720 progressive scan, or 720 inter interlaced scan. Yep. So it scanned every other line. So 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, whatever, and then 2, 4, 6, 8, 10 at a rate that would make it appear that it was filling it in all at the same time. And then right after that, progressive scan started where it would go one, two, three, four, five, six. It was fast enough that it could scan without having to alternate lines. Mm -hmm. And then whoosh, we jumped over to different tube technologies. So they went plasma, uh, LCD, and then LED. And now there's, I don't even know what they're called anymore. They're like, they have names that are way more organic. July 11th, and uh, uh, I wish I could have asked this to you as another trivia question, Bill, but I'm, I'm not going to. Okay. I'm, gonna f I'm just going to frame it like a trivia question. How long do you think a typical car run of a model lasts without changes to the model really at all? Oh. Like uh, five, five years, ten years, something like that, right? Oh, no, not even. I'd say about four. So You know me. I buy nothing but Honda Civics, gray ones yeah. at that. <laughs> Yeah, they changed their model. I think it's like every four years. Yeah, that's about right for the life cycle of a, of a car model. Well, in 2019, the very last Volkswagen Beetle, the old school Volkswagen Beetle with the four-cylinder pancake engine. What year? Uh, they, not, 2019. Wow. The last of them was produced in Pueblo, Mexico. That was the last place in the world that was making them after 80 years. And like five enhancements, like... Well, we'll let the windows roll down. You know, they put a back seat in for the 25th model year or something, but it's like, it's still the old style. It looks like stamped metal Volkswagen Beetle that you see in the original Herbie. That would be a great idea. Heat. Heat in the car. <laughs> and some sort of safety devices. They, when I used to own my the Volkswagen that I had, one of the Volkswagens that I had, they had a convertible yellow VW Bug. I was marveling at just how dangerous that car would be to drive. And I, it was so bad, I was like, like my kids were with me. I'm like, man, don't even touch this car. This car's so dangerous. Just sitting here in the showroom, it could probably kill you. I bet you, you know? the thing ran, though. I bet it did. Unlike like their GTI. other makes and models. <laughs> I'm looking directly at you, Volkswagen. I'm not going to say that they have problematic vehicles, but so 80 years is how long, <laughs> how, long they produced, how long they produced the one car that didn't break down much and didn't need a lot to fix. Have you ever been and, in one? Uh, have you ever been I in have. a Volkswagen? Yeah. It my was a long time ago, but yes. My friend Scott had one, and it was like goldish beige color, just like Ted Bundy's. I was very excited about that. But it was like, he goes, this is the weirdest car. He goes, look at this. Like, he's sitting down in the in the driver's seat, and he can, like, flat palm, not just touch, flat palm the passenger window. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they are they are tiny. Um, there was one for, that came across for sale on, like, Facebook Marketplace or something a few, I don't know, maybe a month ago here. Yeah. And it was, you know, rebuilt motor, and it, 
pictures of the floor. There was no rot. It needed paint, but everything else was sort of there. And it was like 2,600 bucks. And I haven't been hard for a while about like, oh, I had to go pull the trigger on this and, and, and just go get it. Cause like, when else am I going to run across one of these? That's not, right, right. you know, car crusher material. I, I figured if I drove home and showed up at here that my kid, at that point, my kids would be like, it's intervention time. You know? <laughs> Your daughter starts crying. I wanted to go to college and you bought a stupid car. <laughs> but you'll be able to drive it too, Meg. It's just not going to get you anywhere fast. How, how fast does it go? Eh, that's, that's not really a thing, is it? <laughs> so that's not one of the options that this one, this model doesn't have that. I saw one that actually came with like a coffee maker, which is awesome. Probably siphoned off eight of the 13 horsepower just to make the coffee maker work, though. You know, in that Gran Turismo that I was talking about earlier, there's a, a VR version of it, you know? So yep. you, you can, like, drive around in these cars with the, the VR helmet on it. So nice. I was able to drive a Volkswagen Beetle from the safety of my own home. I have also driven that car in the same version of Gran Turismo that you have, and yeah. it's a hoot, yeah. Yeah. You can put, it, like, a million dollars of mods into it, and it still goes, it still tops out at, like, 58 miles an hour. <laughs> You don't have to slow down for corners at all because it doesn't go fast enough to make it like a yeah. difference. Yeah. <laughs> so July 12th, 1976, first family feud game show debuts on ABC, hosted by Richard Dawson. Richard Dawson? Whoever that is. Oh, uh, Richard Dawson used to, he was, yeah, he was the original host of Family Feud. He used to be on the uh, sitcom Hogan's Heroes. Right. Yeah, his big gimmick was he always kissed all the girls. He <laughs> Like on the game show, it's like, Hello, my dear, and mwah, kiss him. Yeah, you kiss everybody. That's weird. Yep. Yeah, so now it's it's hosted by, um, you know, the other uh, Dr. Phil. What is his name? I don't think he's real. I think he's a figment of our imagination. What the hell is his name? You know, Mustache Daddy. Uh, Steve Harvey. That guy. <laughs> Steve Harvey. Yeah, Steve Harvey. That's his <laughs> It's like he doesn't actually exist. He's like he's like a Mandela effect of Family Feud. He's a comedic ghost that shows up at opportune moments. <laughs> and then uh, what's his nuts? Uh, <laughs> what's your nuts? Yeah. Uh, oh, what's that comedian's name? What is it about the Family Feud that their name just like deletes? Dude, it's it's a it's Louis like a, Louis Anderson. It's a vacant hole of pop culture. It all just gets sucked in, and we forget everything. Imagine Plus, that. So you get the Family Feud, man. You and I are contestants on the Family Feud. Yeah. And they're like, 100 people surveyed. Top five answers are on the board. Name a host of the Family Feud. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, no. we just yeah strike out. Just, uh. Yeah. Sitting there wiping drool off of our bottom stand there. We just stand there and stare vacantly like, yeah. I love Steve Harvey. He's he's a comedic genius. I, feel, I, I really, yeah, the way he hosts that show is so good. Yeah, I like, like the way he talks down to everybody. Yeah, like the, like the but morons. It's like, but it's like cute the way he's not really being mean or anything. But it's just like people yeah. say something stupid. He's just like you very rarely get to see someone react to something stupid as <laughs> if it's something stupid. Yeah, and it's refreshing. I I love seeing it. Yeah, he's just he just stares and blinks at you. It's yeah, great. he's got the slow pan down. <laughs> <laughs> the slow pan is really hard to get down. All right, moving on to the 13th. What do you got? Ah, July 13th, 1942. Han Solo himself, Harrison Ford Yay. from 
of course, from Star Wars and Indiana Jones and that movie where he says, get off my plane and kicks the guy off the plane, which is a diehard <laughs> knockoff. I'm just going to put that out there. Air Force One. It's the president is John McClane. Also did some fun stuff like early in his career with he was in uh, American Graffiti. He was in this Frisco kid with uh, Gene Wilder playing the straight man to Gene Wilder's like crazy rabbi who was going west. And he's been all, all kinds of fun stuff. He was even in the Star Wars holiday special. Yes, he was. <laughs> where it looks like he was blinking out. Uh, his location because I think they had his family members <laughs> had his family members in a location under guard just to make sure that he would show up and do his part. Contractual obligations are a contractual bitch, obligation. Yeah. Oh my god! Really a cool guy. Just a you can't not like the guy. And also remember a couple of years ago he was like flying this like amateur plane and like just like crashed. He like crashed later like, like at a park or something like that. Yeah, it was like a World War II trainer or something that he had, yeah. that, this really sort of weird... It wasn't experimental, but it was definitely vintage, and he, he was like, oh, oh, Chewie, we're going down, Chewie. <laughs> yeah, it was a hobby plane. It wasn't it wasn't a plane that you fly to get somewhere. It's a plane that you right. fly for exactly. enjoyment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he didn't get hurt, didn't hurt anybody else. So my favorite role of his is as, as Deckard in Blade Runner. That's my favorite piece of anything that he's ever been in. But that's a super high bar to get over. And his, all of his other characters are compelling to watch. What do you got for the 14th? What's next? July 14th, 1983, Mario Brothers is first released by Nintendo in Japan as an arcade game. The funny thing about this game is I have, I had no memory of this game, Bill, until just before we recorded this show. Now that's Mario Brothers you're talking about. Not Super Mario Brothers, Mario Brothers. No, right? this is regular, yeah, this is just the regular Mario Brothers. And I went and watched a video of gameplay. Yep. And I was like, I do remember this game. I, I know I played this as a coin op as a kid. You can see, like, the DNA of what would become Super Mario Brothers. Yep. And it's like this weird crossover between the type of gameplay that was in Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong... Was it Donkey Kong Jr. was the one where you went from tree to tr from branch to branch, yes. right? Ultimately, what became a side-scroller as Super Mario Brothers. Again, I remember putting coins in it and playing it, but I could not remember that game no matter what I tried. Until you saw the picture uh, of it, yeah? Until I, saw, until I saw the gameplay, and I was like, oh my gosh. And it's so funny to think that it wasn't that game, but it was one based on it that made the Nintendo Entertainment System, the home system, the premier sort of you know home unit and made Nintendo what Nintendo is. I'm not going to say it was the first, because I'm sure there was others before that. But it was definitely one of the first that had simultaneous gameplay, like cooperative gameplay. Right. You know? Uh, I mean, like Joust, you could play two with people at the same time, but that wasn't right. so much cooperative. That was that you were kind of like fighting against each other. Uh, with Mario Brothers, uh, you because you could kill one another on Joust. Right. But with Mario Brothers, you were working together as a team. Yeah. So it was one of the first that were like cooperative gameplay. Well, so anyway, it was really neat to watch, and it was really neat to hear that the trademark piece of music that's known primarily as Super Mario Brothers is also the theme music. For just the opening screen of uh, Mario Brothers, oh, it was wow. neat. Yeah, yeah, I uh, cool. I like that one. I that was that's a it gets really hard really fast. Like the first level, yeah. you're like, oh, that was pretty easy, and then the sec by the time you get like, the second or third screen, you're like, oh, I'm dead. <laughs> I found that that's the case with all of the early Nintendo coin ops. They were de super efficient at getting quarters out of kids and and adults alike. I, I bring this up on Facebook not all that long ago, and I'm going to bring it up right now. I'll, it's been so many years, but I'm going to say it. The first level of Donkey Kong, the Gerda level, is unreasonably yeah. hard. 
They are. It is unreasonably hard. I, I've played these games as a, a fully grown and moderately mature adult. And after I've thrown a buck fifty into these things, sometimes I'm like, "Why am I so bad at this? How can I get? How can I only be playing this? It cost me twenty five cents for like a minute of gameplay. I'm just I suck at this. I don't know why. I can play games that are a million times more photorealistic and have storylines and. There's like a hundred key commands that I have to use, and I have to use my brain to solve problems and puzzles and shit. And oh my god, I'm dead again. I get hit by a goddamn barrel. Like I didn't time the jump right, and I just, I just yeah. suck. Whatever at I them. first got, I don't think it was an emulator. I think I just got it like as a Nintendo game. They had the Donkey Kong classics and all that, and I was like, oh yeah, I was yeah, all yeah. excited. I'm playing, you know, Donkey Kong, and like five times in a row, I just die before I even get by the first screen, and I'm like, why was this even popular? <laughs> it's so freaking yes. hard god damn yeah. nintendo but donkey kong and then you know ultimately into mario brothers i mean that's nintendo i mean there's right i actually looked it up one time how many games have mario in i it? there must be like 30 how about 200 i was that was my next <laughs> guess yeah, there's over 200 games. So, like, yeah, technically there was two, like, 199 sequels to Donkey Kong. Oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, that that's that's counting like, you know, Mike Tyson's Punch Out, where Mario's the uh, referee and stuff. Right, right. Yeah, well, I mean, again, you see, make appearances as opposed to it's, you're not playing them all the time. So. All right, but moving on. All right. July the 15th, 1988. One of the most boring memes in the world. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? I'll get over it. Uh, July 15th, 1988, Die Hard, featuring Bruce Willis, the first of the Die Hard franchise, opens up in theaters. I would argue the only good film in the Die Hard franchise. I heartfully disagree. I love every film in the Die Hard franchise, with the exception of It's a Good Day to Die Hard, I think it was called. The, the last one, the one that took place in Russia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I love all of them. I even love that one that was like the comeback one, uh, Live Free or Die Hard. I really like that one, too. Yep. Uh, the only one that I, I like from a storytelling perspective is the first one, okay. which I fully expected to dislike. And at the time, Bruce Willis was just making the transition into films. He had done the one with Kim Basinger, Blind. right, that we talked about, Blind, Blind Date. Yeah. He's like, that was kind of it. And he was still super popular on TV. He had a whole bunch of advertisements that he was doing for wine, wine coolers and stuff. Right. And he had his, and, he had his music thing there. Return, and he had his music thing going. Up. And then this came out. And I remember going to see it with the express expectation that it was going to be terrible. And we would be able to make fun of it in the cinema. And it was astonishingly good. It was mind-blowingly good. It's and it's and it holds up as a great action movie even today. You just said something really funny. You were like, uh, you know, from a storytelling perspective, it's a fucking action movie, Jeff. It's going bang, 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 blow up stuff, boom, boom, boom. It's an action movie. It's, I'm not looking for, uh, <laughs> you know, a connection to the to the protagonist and exploring man's inhumanity to man. I'm just looking. No, no, for, no. Nor am I. I'm looking for explosions. No, I, nor. Nor am I, but I'm also looking for things that are like relatively potentially something that a trained person could do. Where Die Hard has at least a couple of toes in the real world. Couple. One, and one or two. Die Hard 2, <laughs> less so. Yeah, one or two. Die Hard 2, none. Live for your Die Hard? And I like Samuel L. Jackson. None. Oh, that, that one in Russia? Nope. Uh, you know? Uh, what was the third one called? Oh, Die Hard with, with a Vengeance. I'm sorry. Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> 
again, the first one that it was it had just the right balance of humor and characters were interesting and the story was fast moving and it was great. Yeah, and I wasn't looking for those set pieces the same way you look for the set pieces once you get beyond the first and, one. And with Die Hard, with the original, it's way more quotable. I could probably spit out a dozen quotes from the first yeah. one, not so much from the others. So what's your favorite quote from Die Hard? Do you have a favorite? My favorite quote, I don't know, there's a bunch of them. I think the funniest one, because of the reaction, whatever she said, sir, this is an emergency line. It's for emergency use only. And you just hear him say from the other line, yeah, no fucking shit, lady. You think I'm ordering a pizza? <laughs> That's a good one. Mine is a written line is when they open the elevator and the guys, the dead guys there with the ho, ho, yeah, ho. Yeah. I have a machine gun yeah. now written on, oh, written the, on his chest. And just reads it out. <laughs> yeah. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, 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 ho. ho. <laughs> yeah, that was, that's a great one. And um, the one where the two two FBI guys and it's Michael Nury, he's like, hey, this is just like Vietnam. When they're in the helicopter, <laughs> yeah. he's like, I was nine years old. So <laughs> like, that was such a funny line. Too. No, in, uh, in Die Hard 3, though, Jer- Jeremy Irons was great in Die Hard 3. I can just hear him giving the riddle, like when I was going to say Nides, I met a man with 20 oh, wives yeah. and blah, blah, blah. I can hear his voice as he's saying it over the phone to Samuel L. Jackson. I like so. I like at the end of it, whenever uh, Bruce Willis goes, because Jeremy Irons plays Hans Gruber's brother. brother. And um, at the very, you know, towards the climax of the movie, he says to Jeremy Irons, uh, Bruce Willis says, you know, your brother was an asshole. And then they start laughing. He goes, oh, yes, yes, he was. You got this number. <laughs> <laughs> My only problem with Jeremy Irons in that movie was he, he the only thing they could have done to make him like more villainous German was dress him up like a Nazi and put him in like a and put him in like a tiger tank and have him driving around in New York City in a tiger tank like but again I love the first one and I love the impact that it had on it like this that's it it spawned a whole subgenre of action movies right uh, under siege with Steven Seagal the only really good Steven Seagal movie yep. where he's he's on the the aircraft carrier passenger fifty seven. Wesley Snipes, only good movie that's not played. Speed. I mean, there's tons of them oh, that come have come on. out. And come no, on. But I think Speed, Speed, not like Speed's Speed. a good movie. It's not a great movie. I'm just saying it's one of the. It's one that comes out of this subgenre of action film. I'll put Speed in the same category as Die Hard, where you juxtapose somebody that you never thought would be good in an action movie, but yet they were. Dennis Hopper. Because <laughs> it was the only good thing in Speed, I think. Yeah, but I mean, Keanu Reeves, and then he later went on to do The Matrix. You were like, this guy? This is Ted and, for Bill well, and Ted's did, Excellent Adventure. Point Break, too, which was a great yeah. action movie. So, All right, uh, moving on to the 16th. This is such a weird, like, I, I can't get over this. July 16th, 1963, Paul Winchell, who was on, a, he had his own show called, ready for this, The Paul Winchell Show, hard to remember. He receives the first U.S. patent for an implantable artificial heart. So this guy, Paul Winchell, host of a TV show and a ventriloquist, right. is the guy that invented the in, the artificial heart. Imagine that. You have an artificial heart and they're like, hey, you know who made that? That guy with the freaking puppets. The guy, the guy that was the voice of Tigger. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. He was. He was the yeah, voice of Tigger in the Winnie the yep. Pooh movies. Oh, my God. Yep. 
So what's kind of cool is like, you know, as someone who has a passing interest in technology that keeps hearts alive. Oh, I thought you said you had a passing interest in ventriloquist puppet, but okay. (laughs) Nope, I don't care about ventriloquist, but boy, do I care about things like artificial hearts. His his artificial heart worked by having an implantable bag that would do the pumping action and an, an outside worn motor battery powered motor that would give the power to make the pumping action happen uh-huh. and it, it was designed in a way that was meant to be able to give the person who had it installed a relatively normal life for the time that it was running it's really it's a really innovative way it differs from the artificial heart that i think it was barney clark had installed in his chest in the 19 late 1980s in that that one was powered internally by an internal battery he lived i think 96 days with that artificial heart, the Jarvis model, Jarvis artificial heart. Um, But this one comes way earlier. It's really interesting that he and Heimlich, which thinking about the way that the heart pumps. That's another thing. Makes sense. That's another thing. He was, he developed this uh, artificial heart with the help of Henry Heimlich, who is the creator of the Heimlich maneuver. Yep. The first artificial heart was, was invented by a guy with puppets and the guy that, uh, Squeeze people. people. Yeah, the, the guy was really into like improper bear hugs. Yeah. Yes. So it goes to show you what you can do if you have the right friends, and one of them focuses on squeezing, and the other one focuses on puppets. Yeah. See. All right. Uh, that's going to uh, bring us up to the worst song ever. What are we? Who's our contender this week? I'll give you a hint. Tall, cool. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! I'm already cringing. Okay, enough. Jeff, I will murder you. You'll murder me. <laughs> God, the ubiquitous. Don't worry, be happy. Yeah, don't don't murder me, be happy. Oh. Yes. Oh my God! It was yes. everywhere. That was like this week in 1988. It was yeah. like everywhere. It was a catchphrase. They had buttons and T-shirts that said "Don't worry, be happy." Yeah, you would just as soon as that came on the radio, it's like, oh no, the next three and a half minutes of my life are gonna be terrible. I I actually have a long time fondness for the song because it's such a strange, no, it's such don't. a strange piece of music. And Bobby Farron's an interesting guy. Bobby McFerrin, but- hold on. Bobby McFerrin, see, that was actually the second song I heard from Bobby McFerrin. The first song really? I heard from him was a cover of Good Lovin'. And well, I've never heard that. It's it's fantastic. It's amazing. And he does all the voices. It's super fast. And the video was really interesting too because it's all layered of him, you know, doing the thing. And that was the thing about Bob McFerrin was he didn't use any instrumentation. It was just all of right. his voice in layers. Overdubbed and yeah. layered, yeah. But that don't worry, be happy. I, I think that's a, one of those cases of familiarity, which is a hard word for me to say. Familiarity yep. breeds contempt. It's very yep. true. And yep, I that think so. song was just too much everywhere all at once. Yeah, it was it was too much everywhere all at once. And there, there have been a, f- a few songs that have come around that have been like that. But it's a weird novelty song. And then 
it sort of spawned off a career where he became, again, this is back to the discussion of like what means art, right? What is art? And he went off and he built a whole like acapella orchestra and toured and I used to, he used to show up every year on PBS yes. as part of their fundraising and, and did all of this like really complicated music using only the human voice and, and, you know, whacking himself with his hands to sort of do the beat and, and still managed to, to, to be interesting. And of course, none of that is ever on the radio and there was never a single that followed up. Don't worry, be happy. That was that charted anywhere right. he took that one hit wonderness as super popular as it was in 88 turned it into the career that he had going forward as an artiste which is i think is really interesting and, and admirable Can you see like going to see bobby mcferrin at constant and he's doing all this like you know crazy kind of like jazz stuff and all that and then there's just like some drunk dick in the back like do not worry me happy <laughs> <laughs> right or everybody leaves after he does it yeah, yeah you know like the you know like hey where are you going i've still got like six hours of music to go they're like no nope, we heard oh, enough we're done we heard the kruku kruku that's what i came for <laughs> 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 all right well that's gonna wrap up the show for this week everybody right. should not worry they should be happy that's the way it goes we're gonna see you guys next week say good night jeff good night jeff see you guys bye everybody Special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook and Instagram at Twibly, or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already, and tell your friends. They probably need a cool podcast to listen to as well. And if you don't like this week's episode, there'll be one next week, and it'll probably be better. <laughs>